Okay. Good to go. Good to go. Wanna go ahead and read the thing? It's it's our last thing for the our season. Our last thing. For the season. Not our last thing ever. But yes, I am. Okay. It's often presented as a noble tragedy. Brave explorers sacrificed on the altar of discovery. Hardy men in search of the Northwest Passage, the holy grail of Arctic exploration. On a map, it seems simple. A ship should, in theory, be able to cross through the Arctic Sea and make their way to China. All that would be in your way would be an archipelago of small and large islands north of Canada and the never-ending, unceasing, crushing threat of Arctic ice. Ice that could form around your ship as it traveled, locking it in place for weeks, months, or years. All of that time spent in one of the most harsh and unforgiving biomes on our planet. A noble venture it may have been, but this particular voyage was doomed from the start. Despite the best ships crewed by able men, commanded by an a man with experience, with the full force of the mightiest military in the world behind them. They were experienced, they were prepared, they were well-provisioned. They never had a chance. On this episode of Relative Disasters, The Franklin Expedition. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I have quite a few sidebars in this I one. Bet. I Apologies in advance. I'm Greg, quartermaster and chief tin sealer for the Relative Disasters Expeditions Company. And I'm his sister, Ella, emergency cartographer for Relative Disasters Expedition Company. Uh, yep. This is a big one, huh? This is a big one. This is a really big one. This is the most requested episode I think we've ever gotten. Uh, ever since we did the episodes on the Arctic ghost ships. Oh, yeah. One of which was the HMS Terror, which is one of the ships from this expedition. So this is part two. Yeah. Well, folks have been writing in asking us to cover the Franklin Expedition. And I did not realize just how big of a story we were stepping into when I agreed to do this. Uh -oh. uh, which is fine. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Which is good, actually. I like something that, you know, has a lot to sink your teeth into. Sure. And uh, and, and what better way to end our season? That's right. Uh, this is this is going to be the last episode of, of this year. Uh, and well, let's welcome winter by talking about a lot of people dying in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> uh, our sources for this episode come from the following books. Ice Ghosts by Paul Watson, The Man Who Ate His Boots by Anthony Brandt, Deadly Winter by Martin Beardsley, and Fatal Passage by Ken McGugan. Unraveling the Franklin Mystery Inuit Testimony, collected by David Woodman, was also very helpful, as well as Sir John Brown's published plan to search for Franklin and his crew in 1860. In addition, a plethora of news articles, Canadian history museum pieces, and accounts from the in Inuit people are available for research and help to provide much of the sourcing for this episode. Suffice it to say, there's been a lot written about this event. You did a deep dive, um, huh? Well, we still don't know exactly what happened on this event, but there's been a lot written about okay. it. So, a bit of background. Please. Uh, the Northwest Passage was perhaps the most important and valuable potential route to the East for European sailors. 
It basically went like this. China had stuff the Europeans wanted. Mm -hmm. In order to get it, you either had to go over land, which takes you over nearly the whole Eurasian continent, or you have to sail south and east around Africa and India, mm -hmm. or you have to sail south and west around South America. What explorers and the British Navy really wanted, though, was a way to sail north up to the Arctic Sea and then head west over Canada, cutting down the potential time to travel to China in half or more than half. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two major problems with this route. Problem number one is that you're sailing into the Arctic Sea, which, as we know, is full of crushing and consuming Arctic pack ice mm -hmm. and very few reliable landmarks as icebergs have a tendency to move from year to year. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to tell if you're mapping an ice flow or an archipelago. Ooh, I had not thought about that, but that makes so much sense. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a problem. Yikes. OK, um, when everything is ice and covered in ice, which ice do we map? Right. Uh, problem number two is that you need to find a reliable, consistent, safe-ish passage. Mm -hmm. You need a path that's not going to disappear when the seasons change, that's traversable by ships and people that can handle the ice and the cold. Mm -hmm. As we talked about in the Arctic Ghost Ships episode, the ice up in that little zone of the world is a terrifying force of nature, capable of grinding ships to pieces or locking them in place for years. And it's unpredictable, right? And it's completely unpredictable. Yeah. One day you could have like clear seas and then the next day your ship is half halfway up an iceberg because it's being crushed. That's the part that freaks me out. Okay. Yeah, Go it's on. not great. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a classic high risk, high reward type of venture. Mm -hmm. The people to discover the Northwest Passage would spearhead the most valuable trade route on the planet. But many, many people were going to die to achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. Now. The British Navy was relentless in their pursuit, especially once Sir John Barrow became the second secretary of the Admiralty in 1804. So Barrow wanted the Northwest Passage found, and he sent expedition after expedition north to map out the Canadian coast. They succeeded in definitively figuring out where the Northwest Passage wasn't. The comparatively temperate areas were eliminated from contention mm -hmm. and the expedition pushed further and further north by 1845 they had narrowed down the unknown canadian arctic area that might contain the passage uh, to an area of about 181,000 square kilometers with only about 500 kilometers of unmapped coast okay so this is this they have a target and it's a relatively small one they needed to just explore this one area and they would either find it or they wouldn't. Sure. All they needed was the right crew, the right commander, and the right ships. Now, Sir John Barrow was 82 years old at this point, and he was running out of time to realize this dream of his. Mm -hmm. This was going to be the last push for the passage, and he needed the perfect leader for the adventure. Someone brave, bold, and experienced in the Arctic. He had just such a man. Of course. Sir William Edward Perry, who had previously had success on other Arctic expeditions. Uh, Perry had fought his way through vicious pack ice around the Canadian Arctic archipelago around three quarters of the way across the area of that area of the Arctic. Mm -hmm. um, that waterway, by the way, is now known as the Perry Channel. Okay. Uh, he also set a record for the northernmost latitude in 1827, reaching 82 degrees and 45 minutes north, a record that would stand for the next 50 years. Fun. Perry politely by all accounts, turned Barrow down. He'd spent the majority of his career mapping the Arctic, and he was feeling done. Barrow then turned to Sir James Clark Ross, who had been part of four of Perry's expedition and had attained renown for his successful Antarctic mapping expedition. Mm -hmm. 
uh, which ran from 1839 through 1843, creating the first accurate magnetic maps of the Antarctic and locating the magnetic location of the South Pole. Cool. Yeah, he was pretty cool. However, no reason why he can't do it again on the other side of the world. Right? right? Exactly. That's good thinking. He's already right got there. the magnets. He knows what to look for. <laughs> It was honestly, I wish we had the time to go into like the magnetic aspect of the exploration because it is such cool science. Mm. Maybe, maybe we'll have to do it like a part three. On All this. I can anyway. picture is some guys sprinkling, um, like iron, iron filing off the side of the ship <laughs> <laughs> and seeing which way they want to go. Okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's fantastic. Um, however, Ross had recently married his wife, Anne, mm. and she had asked for his promise to not undertake any more of these dangerous polar exploration missions. Which is reasonable. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so he declined as well. Barrow then recommended one of the biggest naval rock stars of the day, a guy named James Fitzjames. And the Admiralty turned him down because he was too cool. Okay. What they really turned him down for was because they viewed him as too young and too brash. But we all know what that's code right. for. We need to do a sidebar on James Fitzjames. Okay. Okay. James Fitzjames was the illegitimate son of a minor diplomat named Sir James Gambier and an unknown mother. Gambier was married to a woman named Jemima Snell at the time of Fitzjames's birth, and about the only fact that can be nailed down is that she is not his mother. Okay. Uh, his father never acknowledged him, and the very young James Fitzjames was taken into the care of the Coningham family. Uh, they were a very intellectual family, both spouses being published authors of philosophy and poetry, and they had a son James's age and raised the two as brothers, uh, while well, he referred to the Coningham's as his aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. uh, they saw to it that he received an excellent education, and at the age of 12, he entered the Royal Navy as a volunteer of the second class and was promoted to volunteer of the first class uh, uh, by the time he was 15. This began a lifelong love of the Navy and the sea. He rose rapidly through the ranks despite not having nepotism in his favor, as was the custom of the Navy at the time. Uh, <laughs> by his own merit and bravery verging on foolhardiness, he secured his promotion to lieutenant and then commander by the age of 29. Wow. Um, yeah. Some of his feats of courage included diving fully clothed into the River Mercy to save a drowning man taking a musket ball to protect his captain during Britain's opium war against China. Mm -hmm. The ball lodged against his spine, mm -hmm. but he recovered fairly quickly. And uh, also taking part in solving some sort of scandalous situation in Singapore involving one Sir George Barrow, the oldest son of Sir John. It all comes full circle. The Grateful Father promised to watch over Fitzjames's career, to which Fitzjames demurred, saying he'd rather progress on his own merit. Mm -hmm. In a letter to John Barrow Jr., with whom Fitzjames also had become close, he said, quote, I think I should make up in perseverance what I might want in sense, end quote. Anyway. It's <laughs> good to know yourself. <laughs> I like this dude, but the Admiralty turned him down, so end of sight. Okay. Uh, Barrow's next choice was Sir George Back, but Back's last expedition had seen him get icebound for 10 months and his health wasn't great. So he retired in 1839 and took up his real love, that of watercolor painting. Nice. And he was really good at it, by the way. If you can see some of Sir George Back's watercolors, they're very nice. Uh, so he declined the offer as well. Barrow wanted to put forward a man named Francis Crozier, who was a distinguished and excellent captain, but knew that the Admiralty would not take an Irishman of humble birth to lead an expedition of this magnitude. So he went with his last choice, Sir John Franklin. Now, 
Sir John Franklin was his last choice, but he was not a bad choice. Franklin had extensive experience in the Arctic as a younger man and was just now coming off of an undistinguished four-year term as lieutenant governor of Van Diemen's Land. Okay. And his political reputation had been damaged. Also counting against him was his age of 59. Oh, I didn't realize he was that Yeah. Okay. Not a spring chicken. However... The Admiralty agreed that he was the best of the men who was willing, able, and not Irish enough to lead this expedition. <laughs> oh, boy. oh, yeah. So he was appointed. Um, now, Sir John Franklin had been followed by bad luck, bad circumstances, and some bad judgment his entire life. Uh, as a young commander of 33, he had fallen overboard in, an, in the Arctic and nearly died, with his rescuer nearly dying as well. Mm-hmm. Of the 20 men under his command in the 1819 Coppermine Expedition, which went from Hudson Bay to the Coppermine River, 11 of those 20 men died, and there were dark rumors of murder and cannibalism for the survivors. The slightly more palatable tale was that the survivors had to eat their own leather boots for sustenance, giving Franklin the nickname of, quote, the man who ate his boots, end quote. (laughs) We're off to a great start. Okay. Uh, His first wife died of tuberculosis about two years after their wedding, leaving him with a one-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. He remarried five years later. His wife, Jane, would be his biggest supporter, and she herself was a traveler. And uh, then he was appointed to be the lieutenant governor of Van Diemen's Land, which is modern Tasmania, Mm -hmm. shortly afterwards. His governorship can best be described as mediocre. Okay. uh, And he was recalled in 1843. However, not before pulling one of the all-time trash moves that makes me really, really reluctant to give this guy much credit. Uh, When they moved there, he and his wife had requested a, quote, aboriginal child, end quote, to raise alongside his daughter from the first marriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, The girl had been taken from the Lorini tribe and had had her name changed. Uh, well, the Franklins would raise her in their home during his governorship. When he was recalled, they abandoned her. She was eight years old at the time. Oh, that's horrible. Having no memory of her either real family and no, no safety net once her quote-unquote adopted family just left her. She died at the age of 17 by drowning. There are no records of either John or Jane attempting to correspond with her in any way after they left Tasmania. That is absolutely horrible. Wow. Yeah, okay. it's it's terrible behavior. Um, uh, and, and this is the, one of the weird sort of things that I have to try to reconcile is the fact that a lot of the people who wrote about Franklin talked about what a what a kind man he was mm-hmm. and what a fervently religious man he was. Hmm. And it was just it's hard to reconcile those two things. But... If we get into the British treatment of the Aboriginal people of Australia, we will be here for part four. Uh, So anyway, Franklin wanted to get back to the Arctic, and this was going to be the voyage to finally resolve the Northwest Passage question once and for all. He was officially given command of the expedition in February of 1845 Mm -hmm. and given two ships, the Erebus and the Terror. What were they thinking with those names? I know we said this in the uh, Arctic Ship episode, but I just uh, can't uh, get my hands around my mind around great. it. They're great names for Arctic exploration ships. That's all there is to it. It. Just, it, um, it has bad omen. Well, here's the thing: the Erebus and the Terror. Okay, it's sort of a weird way to describe this, but they had been serving on on Arctic expeditions and and um, 
well, polar expeditions, mm-hmm. really, because they'd served in the Antarctic as well, for years at this point. They were two former bomb vessels that had been refitted for the unforgiving Arctic. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to describe how advanced these ships were for the day. One historian uh, referred to them as the space shuttles of their day. Ooh. These were light years in terms of technology and ability ahead mm-hmm. of basically every other ship when it came to navigating ice water. Okay, They were refitted with steam engines engines that were repurposed from railway engines, able to move the ships at about four knots. These engines had screw propellers, which were also retractable into wells inside the ship Mm. so they wouldn't get caught up in the pack ice. Uh, The hulls were reinforced with iron plates and extra planking was built into the decks to more evenly distribute loads and as extra reinforcement against ice impacts. Ductwork traveled through the ships from their stoves to heat the berths. Mm -hmm. And as for supplies, they each carried a 12-day supply of coal for the engines. They travel mostly under sail and use the engines if they got stuck. Mm-hmm. Enough canned food to last their crews three years, which was about 8,000 cans of food. Oh, boy. And for entertainment, they had packed about 1,000 books on each ship. <laughs> so Gotta have the entertainment. You, dude, it, I mean, nowadays it would be like a Netflix subscription. And back then it was just load them up with books. What kind of books? Uh, all kinds. All kinds. All all right. kinds. These, were, these were biographies. These were adventure stories. These were, uh, there were definitely a couple of dirty books that were hidden away in there. Mm-hmm. All sorts of different kind of books. Interesting. Um, now, there is one side note here uh, in regards to the canned food. So canned food was relatively new. And the contract to their provisioner for the tins was granted in April of 1845, which was about seven weeks before the expedition was supposed to leave. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not a lot of time to can 8,000 cans for each ship. Um, Due to this, the effort to fill the order was very rushed, Mm -hmm. resulting in sloppy soldering, which at the time was lead soldering. Oh, okay. Yep. And botulism contamination. Oh, boy. And for a very long time, one of the theories was that people uh, died of lead poisoning and botulism. But despite this contamination, which absolutely did happen, by the way, I'm not downplaying that at Mm -hmm. all. The majority of the food supply was safe. And while lead poisoning may have contributed to some deaths, according to recent research, the amount of lead in the bodies that were found was not significantly higher than the average at the time. So it wasn't like these guys were just like eating lead on the ship. That is really interesting. Okay. It's not good for you, but it was it was no worse than if they'd stayed Can home. Can I just tell you how much I hate the idea of looking at 8,000 cans of food and knowing that like 10% of them had a little botulism in there and Find another the 10% would give you lead poisoning? Yep. I hate that so yeah, much. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, it's not great. It's it's you're playing roulette with, uh, with, with your, your food, food cans. And you need that food. And you do need that food. All right. So Franklin was an overall command. Mm-hmm. The terror would be captained by Francis Crozier. And the Erebus would be commanded by James Fitzjames. Mm-hmm. Um, captain Crozier, as we said before, was Irish and had risen to his rank of captain, despite the Admiralty's lack of enthusiasm, if we can say that nicely, for Irish commanders. He had served in both William Perry and James Clark Ross's polar expeditions with distinction. Mm-hmm. And although he was second in command of this mission, he was not allowed to select the subordinate officers. Hmm. Again, because he was Irish. 
which is usually the second in command's job. Right. Uh, James Fitzjames was in charge of selecting them instead. Nevertheless, uh, it's really hard to speak more about how well respected uh, Captain Francis Crozier was. Mm-hmm. Uh, these men would absolutely follow him into fire, and as it turned out, they followed him to their deaths into ice. So he was well respected, and he had no issues with insubordination or resentment. There was a theory that was put out in the late 1800s that uh, part of why the, this voyage collapsed was due to some kind of mutiny. That did not happen. There's no evidence of that happening. Mm-hmm. And all the writings about Crozier basically state that uh, if one had started, he would have squashed it. And the men respected him too much to start one in the first place. Okay. So just laying that to rest. At any rate, with the ships packed, loaded, and crewed, the expedition set forth on May 19th of 1845 from Kent. They sailed to the Orkney Islands of northern Scotland, and then they took the month-long trip north to Greenland. Now, at this last stop, everybody wrote their last letters home, and five crew members were sent home because they were sick. Mm -hmm. Of what? Which lowered the... I. You know what? They lost the roulette. (laughs) Could have been. Could have been. Maybe they lost... Yeah, they lost food roulette. They lost the food roulette, but they won something far more valuable. Yeah, they got to live. Mm. In... uh, in July, the, sh- the whaling ships uh, Prince of Wales and Enterprise mm-hmm. encountered Franklin's ships in Baffin Bay, and this was the last time Europeans would see the ships or their crews alive. Mm. So basically just barely into the Canadian Arctic, and that was That's it. That was it. Now, by 1848, when years had passed with no word from the expedition, the British Navy finally mounted a search, mostly egged on by uh, Franklin's wife, Jane, Mm -hmm. who was a staunch advocate of him. And uh, really, she was the driving force behind a lot of the efforts to find him and his expedition. Mm -hmm. So the, the Admiralty sent two expeditions by sea, one led by James Clark Ross that sailed north from Britain to the Canadian archipelago, and one led by Henry Kellett, which came westward from the Pacific. In addition, they also sent an overland expedition led by Sir John Richardson and John Ray that moved up from uh, sort of where Ontario is now into where Nunavut is Mm -hmm. now. And now we get to talk about my other favorite person in the story, John Ray. Okay. Okay. John Ray is great. John Ray uh, was born in Scotland in 1813. He graduated from the University of Edinburgh with a degree in medicine and became a surgeon. He was employed by the Hudson Bay Company at a wonderful little town called Moose Factory. I'm sorry, what? Uh, <laughs> Moose Factory. Moose, yep. The, the place where they make the mooses. Yes, it's where mooses are made. I never knew oh, that. Oh, boy. I thought they grew wild and had to be plucked from I trees. Think we but need to this road is the trip factory there. that they make them. Amazing. <laughs> we, should, we should definitely go to Moose Factory. Uh, while there, as their primary physician, mm-hmm. he learned to speak with the indigenous people employed by the Hudson Bay Company, and his better communication paid off. Uh, allowing him to de-escalate tensions between the European and indigenous workers. And they taught him how to snowshoe, which he became very good at and designed his own snowshoes, actually. Mm. And he learned how to live off the land from them as well, allowing him to travel long distances uh, to fulfill, you know, doctoring needs without needing to be overburdened with provisions or have a large retinue of assistance. Or... Have botulism from the tan. Or have goods. botulism. That's true. You're, this, He's the way canned ahead. botulism is not gonna not gonna be let go by you. I just you're gonna be in the grocery store next week and just be like, I would buy this, but botulism or lead poisoning or lead you poisoning. Just don't know. You never know. 
Flip a coin. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, uh, Ray also learned how to build igloos mm-hmm. from uh, from the indigenous folks there, and he was responsible for a lot of the mapping of those areas. Ooh. What I really like about John Ray is that it's clear in his writings and the writings of people about him that instead of the usual European superior attitude that kept the native people at arm's length, Mm -hmm. Ray seemed to really embrace them with curiosity, uh, figuring that the people who had successfully lived in this inhospitable climate might know a thing or two about surviving in this inhospitable climate. Mm. Um, I, I really like that about him and his ability to see beyond his preconceptions mm-hmm. led him to be the first person to actually find out what had happened. Interesting. You see, the Europeans last saw Franklin's expedition when it was just starting out. Right. The Inuit people had seen them a few months before the last of them had perished. Oh, interesting. But that comes later. Uh, so neither Ross's nor Kellett's groups found Franklin's ships, mm-hmm. and Richardson had to give up the search in the summer of 1849 due to a lack of resources and a complete lack of success. But Ray basically volunteered to keep looking, you know, splitting his time and, and, and as part of his mission for the Hudson Bay Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asked around among the native groups until in the spring of 1853, he found a group of Inuit who had some of the Franklin crew's possessions. They had found them abandoned in the ice years before, and they had been traded through, you know, different groups until they had reached this particular group of Inuit. And so Ray, instead of trying to find the trail that Franklin may have followed, he followed the trail of these possessions. Following these items, he finally tracked down the Inuit who had actually encountered the last remnants of Franklin's men. Mm-hmm. So according to the Inuk he spoke with, about 40 of Franklin's men were last seen pulling a boat near the north of King William's Land, which is part of the Arctic archipelago in like in the ocean mm-hmm. of modern-day Nunavut. Okay. They looked they looked gaunt and malnourished and from the description were most likely being led by Francis Crozier. Mm-hmm. None of the men could speak the Inuk's language, but they communicated as best they could through gestures, telling them that their two ships had been crushed by ice, that they were the last remaining survivors, and that they were headed to where they had seen what they termed deer, which were likely barren ground caribou, mm-hmm. to shoot for food. Um, they were well armed with muskets and shot, and they traded with the Inuit for some seal meat, And that was in the spring of 1850. Okay. By the time those Inuit passed through again sometime in early or mid-summer, they found the bodies of the men. Some were buried. Some were dead in their tents. Some were dead under the makeshift shelter they'd made of their boat. Uh, The body of their leader, again, likely Crozier, was some distance away, dead while laying on his double-barreled gun. Hmm. The final piece that Ray reported to the Admiralty was the most horrifying, and... It is the following, quote, From the mutilated state of many of the corpses and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen have been driven to the last resource, cannibalism, as a means of prolonging existence, end quote. There's something so sad to me about, yeah. you know, seeing other humans yeah. and not being able to communicate how desperately they needed help. Oh sure. And maybe yeah. even they were not quite aware of of how 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 much they needed help. Yeah, how desperate their, or their how situation much th- was. Exactly. And then to end exactly. up like that. Oh man, that's terrible. Okay. Yeah. It's it's heartbreaking. They had had plenty of ammunition and equipment. Mm-hmm. 
but they had simply run out of food. So the Inuit had taken some of the more interesting items to trade and use. Mm -hmm. A silver dish inscribed on the back with Sir John Franklin KCH was the most important piece of evidence. But they also had guns and silverware, much of which they traded or allowed Ray to purchase Mm -hmm. from them. John Ray then dispatched a letter to the Admiralty in 1854 once he'd returned back to... uh, I I guess he was still operating on a moose factory. I'm not sure. I'd like to think he was. What's your return address? Um, But at any rate, he sent, yeah, yeah, just moose factory. Uh, But he sent a letter to the Admiralty in 1854 with his findings Mm -hmm. and ended his search. And that was it? He did not uncover any more evidence? He did not um, uncover any more evidence himself. He did spend a very long time talking with the Inuit who had had uncovered most of the Mm -hmm. evidence. But as we'll see in a moment... um, that didn't actually help anybody. Oh, dear. Um, okay. Now, unknown to Ray, the Admiralty had sent one more search mission commanded by Sir Edward Belcher. Okay. Belcher's campaign was given five ships, four of which he abandoned in the ice and returned home to a court-martial, which is standard for a captain who lost his mm-hmm. ship. Uh, and while exonerated by the court-martial, he was never given command again. His wife also left him after he gave her a venereal disease. That's um, okay. Not Very cool. irresponsible all around. His voyage is an interesting footnote, however, mm-hmm. because one of those abandoned ships was the HMS Resolute. Oh. And, and it wound up breaking free of the pack ice and drifted around for a while until an American whaling ship found it. Mm-hmm. And as a gesture of good faith, the American government returned it to the United Kingdom. Years later, when the ship was decommissioned and broken up, its timbers were used to construct the famous Resolute Desk, given as a gift from Queen Victoria to President Rutherford B. Hayes. And uh, while its location in the White House has changed over the years... Mm-hmm. It usually sits in the Oval Office and is used by presidents to this day. Now, is there a matching so one cool. in England, or is it just the one desk? It's just the one. Oh. Yeah. And that nice front piece on it uh, was commissioned and put on there for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who didn't he didn't want people to see right, him right. sitting behind it in his wheelchair, so or with leg braces on. So that's so interesting. Yeah, it's a really cool little piece of history there. Uh, however, back in 1854, mm-hmm. Ray's letter to the Admiralty somehow had been given to the press and it caused outrage and outcry, especially from Franklin's widow, Jane. Mm. Um, John Ray was immediately shunned by society. Uh, None other than Charles Dickens wrote a refutation of Ray's report declaring that British Navy men would never resort to cannibalism and that the Inuit people must have killed and eaten them. Oh boy. Dickens... He, sh- he really should have real, known better. <laughs> he had a real problem with the Inuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really does kind of come out in his writings just how virulently alien he found them. Uh, so Charles Dickens, you know, between writing, you know, A Christmas Carol and Great Expectations, mm-hmm. also wrote some incredibly awful things about people he'd never met or seen. And between him and... Uh, Lady Jane Franklin's uh, social standing. Mm-hmm. John Ray, uh, who was not knight- ever knighted uh, and was, you know, Scottish beside, basically had no had no real uh, voice in society anymore and lived out the rest of his life in obscurity. But I'd like to think that he was fine with this sort sure. of having told his truth and hanging out in 
Moose Factory and talking with people that he found incredibly interesting. So, more searches were led and more evidence was found. Mm -hmm. The Admiralty officially declared the members of Franklin's expedition deceased in 1854. But they had not found any remains, right? They just had this report of Ray. They had they had found some remains of buried people. Mm-hmm. They had found a few artifacts of the mission. They hadn't found like this last resting place of 40 corpses. Okay. No. People continued to search for Franklin's crew throughout the 1800s and they found bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, two notes that had been encapsulated in cairns so that they could be dug out and read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lots of their equipment. And as best as can be pieced together from the finds and the Inuit interviews, once people finally got around to asking if the people who actually lived there knew anything about what had happened, mm-hmm. um, all of that sort of sketches out what likely did happen to the Franklin crew. So what happened? It's fairly mundane and predictable. Yeah. In a nutshell, the ships became icebound multiple times over multiple periods. Mm-hmm. The Canadian Arctic archipelago is difficult to navigate even when you know exactly where you are and where you're going. And this mission had no maps and no ways of knowing that if the waterways they were entering were enclosed bays or straits. Mm -hmm. Once they became icebound and their supplies dwindled away, the men simply slowly died of starvation, scurvy, malnutrition, a lack of good proteins contributed to a lot of illnesses. Mm -hmm. And they all sort of quietly died. Uh, Franklin himself died in June of 1847, mm-hmm. and command passed to Fitzjames and Crozier. The ships were abandoned after April of 1848 after being trapped for over a year and a half in the same ice. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine 18 months of being locked in the same place in the bitter cold, and you can't get out, and you're just watching those cans of food disappear? Like, it's... That is I, really I horrible. They, yeah. Yeah. So the surviving men at that point tried to head south under the command of Crozier. At this point, Fitzjames had likely died. Mm-hmm. Um, and on their journey south, they just slowly dwindled away and fell fell to the snow and never got up again. So the party that Ray heard about, those were yes, considered to be the, the last... last of Crozier's oh, men. Boy. Okay. Yeah. There was no major accident. There were no major boneheaded decisions. There was no plot. There was no uprising. There was just an inability to survive in one of the harshest places on Earth. Mm. There were scattered stories and rumors of a few survivors being taken in by Inuit natives, Mm -hmm. but nothing has ever been conclusively proven. Mm -hmm. The general assumption is that of the 129 men under Franklin's command, none survived. Wow. And they can yeah. say definitively that certain remains were found and others have just never been found? Yes. Okay. There have definitely been found and identified remains. So how many people were identified? Uh, that's a good question. I don't actually know the figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I it, It's probably less than 50. Oh, wow. But, okay. Yeah. But, I mean, the thing is also is that Arctic... Like, the Arctic conditions, if you go under that ice, you're going to be preserved fairly well, right. but you're also never going to be found. So so I guess my next question is, um, are people yeah. still finding bits and pieces from... Absolutely All they right. are. Uh, in fact, both ships that had disappeared, uh, as we talked about in the in the Arctic Ocean right, episodes, right, right. were recently just found. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Erebus, 
was found in very bad condition with its deck pretty much completely ripped up. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the Terror, which interestingly enough was found in Terror Bay, uh, that was named after the Terror, but without any knowledge that the Terror was actually lying on the oh, bottom of it. Oh, that's so creepy. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, that one, actually, if they could get it back up to the surface, a lot of like ship engineers mm-hmm. think it's still probably seaworthy. It's in, like, really good condition. Okay. I mean, it's going to need some patches, and you're going to need to pump the water out of it. Also, it's cursed. It might actually still sail. Also, it might be cursed. There is that. And super haunted, probably. sailing by itself for quite some time, and then settled into its namesake bay. Maybe just leave it there. Yeah. Don't know. So the Northwest Passage was finally traversed in 1904 by Roald Amundsen. Mm -hmm. Now... I'm stating that as a definitive fact. However, there is contestion about that. Some people want to credit John Ray with discovering the Northwest Passage. Mm -hmm. Some people want to credit some other folks that got in, around, near the neighborhood. Uh, Roald Amundsen is usually the one credited with discovering the Northwest Passage and traversing it successfully. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just going to put that out there. We know there are others, but since he's the one that most folks give the credit to, I'm just saying okay fine you can have it um and really what that proved was how bad a commercial route it would be yeah Um, i mean you're really not selling me on this (laughs) like it's great to have a shortcut yeah but not one that kills you not one that kills you and destroys your boat right because the whole point of this is you're trying to get goods from one place to another and what good is that if you're taking them through a place that will crush your boat to pieces yeah i'm gonna Uh, it's a hard pass for me I'll take the long Plus, way. we can we can fly now, so well, I mean, there's that. <laughs> details, details. So that is the story of the Franklin expedition. They they went in very skilled, very well prepared, mm-hmm. and they were doomed from the start because there was no passage through the ice that they could have found, mm-hmm. and all of them died. Well, that's a downer. Isn't it? Now, I will say this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there have been recently a lot of interesting fictional takes on this. Okay. Uh, including a book called The Terror, which is a novel by Dan Simmons published in 2007, mm-hmm. which is a highly fictionalized account of uh, the Franklin Expedition. Great title, though. Uh, sure. Named after the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bay. Wherein Franklin's crew... Uh, has to deal with uh, a really nasty mutiny mm-hmm. uh, and then are finally stalked across the bleak Arctic landscape by a monster of some kind. Sweet. That, to me, and is a much more compelling story than uh, what actually happened. I, sure. I love an Arctic monster. The only problem with it is that this Arctic monster mm-hmm. is... Somebody that is completely made up by the author, Mm -hmm. but credited as being a real figure in Inuit mythology. It isn't. uh, Mm -hmm. It's not a it's not a real thing. That's not cool. And by making this up, there's a little there's some weird tone to it. I don't know. Sure. A little appropriate. I read I I read through this book. Uh, It is 784 pages. Mm -hmm. I it's an interesting read. It's not my cup of tea. There is, however, because, of course, it was a successful novel, Mm -hmm. um, there is a TV show made of it, uh, which ended in 2019, I want to say. Is that the one called The Terror? It's the one called The Terror. 
and uh, also not my cup of tea, but an interesting fictional take on it. And there have been other interesting fictional takes on it as well. There have mm-hmm. been a number of paintings and songs, and it figures very prominently in um, sort of Canadian explorer mythology. Sure. And, uh, y- you know, to the point where we're even talking about this is a little weird for me because it's kind of like talking about almost a national myth. Mm-hmm. But... It is something that actually happened, and these are the circumstances as well as we understand them of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's it's a very interesting story because there's no there's absolutely no twist. A bunch of people yeah. sailed up to try to find their way through the ice in the absolute best ships that could possibly do it, mm-hmm. and they all died. I mean, like, I, it's it, incredibly okay. sad to me because... I feel like a lot of Arctic exploration has this huge ego component to it where it's like, you know, we've got this wild untamed land and all it needs is me, an English naval vessel and (laughs) a few good men. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, you know, it's very naive um, on one hand, but it's so dangerous on the other hand. So many people died trying to do this. I, I, I don't know. It's it's there's the part of me that also sees it as just like another attempted expansion of imperialism. Sure. Because if they had found the Northwest Passage and it were traversable, Mm -hmm. then I mean, who knows? We're talking British Empire in the 1850s. Who knows where they would have pushed into Mm -hmm. next, you know? So it's just a you know, it's a weird little it's a weird little piece of history it's a super fascinating that, story. I'm I'm glad absolutely. to know more about it. I I was too. I was really grateful for people to suggest this. I was I was kind of done with it after the terror, mm-hmm. but going back to it and rereading and reading a whole bunch of other sources and uh, especially the stuff about the expedition itself. To me, the most interesting part of this is the preparation. Right. Because at no point did anybody say should we do this? Like, should we hold off maybe? I think they had had that conversation like 400 years earlier. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Fair. Um, That's a fair point. And then they were just working up to it. Yeah, this is a super fascinating story. Uh-huh. Um, and really sad. Yeah. It doesn't have a happy ending. I mean, nothing we talk about really has a happy ending, but... This, it's this true. Is the just... show is called Relative Disasters, not Relative Things That Went Okay. Well, season three is going to be Relative Things That Went Okay. Just just giving Ooh, you a heads up now. That'd be fun. I mean, we definitely do have a few disasters, though. Yeah. Uh, so that's it, folks. That's that's the last episode of this season. Uh, we'll be back in January. And um, before we get into our, our regular outro here. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to our amazing listeners. You guys are the best. Yeah. Thank you so much for your emails. We don't reply to emails, but we read every single one. And um, all the kind words in there really make our day. Thanks also to yeah, our Instagram seriously. friends. Um, if you're following the show on Instagram, you will be getting some updates as we are researching season three. <laughs> uh, so stay tuned. And thank you also for all the comments and messages that we get on there. You guys are the best. And the reviews that you guys leave on, on different places are, are always fun for us to read as well. See, when we started this podcast, I was sure that we would get like terrible scathing reviews. <laughs> 
Well, we do. They just tend to be polite about it. They're like, hey, do you know your sound quality is really bad? Do you guys need help? Okay, speaking like, of <laughs> that issue, we are upgrading our audio situation. Um, so if you've been suffering from my $25 microphone or uh, our free audio software, we are going to make some changes there. And we should be coming back to season three with a clearer sound. I can't, I can't guarantee that my voice will not get less annoying. <laughs> I was born with that. Yeah. So, <laughs> yep. Um, but it will be clearer, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I do take heart in the fact that a few people have pointed out that our editing skills have gotten much better than our beginning episodes. I mean, you have to, um, you have to realize we started from not knowing anything. Like our idea was just to make a podcast. Our idea was um, just to talk to each other and record it. And, <laughs> and little did we know. There's a big learning curve when you're using audio equipment for the first time and when you're researching nonfiction topics for the first time. So we appreciate your sticking with us. And yeah, we're absolutely. doing our best to make season three our best yet. Well, I mean, there's nowhere to go but up, really. <laughs> no, we can always go backwards. <laughs> uh, fair enough. And I, I would also like to thank the the nice folks on Reddit who've been talking about the show. Um, again, we don't reply to stuff, uh, but we do read it. And Makes our day. I really, I, I'm really grateful for the people who are out there like, hey, you guys should check this out because that's really kind of you. Thank you. We appreciate it. Well, although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show and all year long, all year we long. do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. And if we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And you know you, you do. You know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. It is our 80th episode and we are taking yeah. a well-deserved break. Um, we will wow. be back. I don't know how much we deserve a break, <laughs> but we're taking one I anyway. deserve a break. Maybe you do You deserve a break from me. That's true. <laughs> I think we deserve a break from each other. Uh, love you. <laughs> Um, we will be back first Monday in January. We will have a fresh new yes. episode for you. Yeah. And, uh, and again, stay tuned to the Instagram for, for various and sundry. Do you want to, should we, should we talk a little bit about some episodes that we might be doing next year? Or you want to do a teaser? Should we leave uh, everyone in suspense? Sure. I've got a couple. I, I've got a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a list? I have, <laughs> I have a little list. I mean, I have a little spreadsheet if you want to. Mm. Yeah. So uh, a few of the ones that I'd like to tackle next uh -huh. year. Um, I want to talk about the water wiggle. What's one you want to talk about? Um, so I'm our airship crash expert, and I want to talk about the crash of R100 and R101. Excellent. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also looking at the Erfurt latrine disaster. Oh, God. So many poop <laughs> jokes. Prepare so yourself. many poop jokes. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Roanoke colonists and Ooh, the story of excellent. their mysterious disappearance. Croaton. Um, you're going to talk about uh, Ten Cent Beer Night. Anybody up for yes. a Ten Cent Beer Night? We've gotten yep. so many re requests for that, and I keep <laughs> passing it over to you because I don't know enough about baseball. Um, <laughs> See, you don't need to. You just need to know a lot about how <laughs> dumb people get when beer is ten cents. <laughs> I've got two shipwrecks for you next season, at least two. Ooh, 
The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Sinking of the Lusitania. Excellent, excellent. Two very meaty stories. I've got a shipwreck for you as well. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the SS Marine Electric. Oh boy. And uh and my final my final little teaser for next for next season mm-hmm. is a very interesting uh case wherein some people attempted to defraud a woman named Sarah Rector Ooh. and she wrecked them. Very good. Um, I'm just going to wrap up with some reader suggestions that we have scheduled yes, for season three. Those are uh, the Victoria Steamboat Disaster, which takes place in London, Ontario. Yep. The Hartford Circus Fire. Yes. The Beverly Hills Supper Club Fire, which is, those uh, are both terrible. Um, yeah. And a double header on two disasters that occurred on the Ebrox stadium i know i'm gonna need to look up how to pronounce that in glasgow scotland (laughs) uh some great suggestions this year we're really really happy to have those and uh we look forward to telling you all about them next year we will see everybody next year for more amazing disasters and thank you so much for sticking with us through uh through all of these Mm mm-hmm